Trevor Albert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. In this particular case, uh, Dave Cameron is uh, coming to us not from his home in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. Uh, in fact, he's coming to us from a different American state, a different American state that's Florida, and in particular Orlando, Florida, and even more in particular, the Swan and Dolphin, or the Dolphin and Swan, some manner of hotel, uh, perhaps a Disney-owned hotel in Orlando, Florida, where uh, this week the winter meetings are taking place. That's baseball's winter meetings, uh, most known, of course, as a place where uh, front offices will convene, uh, where uh, deals typically, uh, or at least historically, have been done, although it's been quite an active offseason already. Um, one is also able to see Peter Gammons and John Heyman everywhere. If you're, if you're there, you see those people everywhere. Uh, you will see some baseball managers, as uh, Cameron and I discussed. And, uh, but more than anything is you see uh, 20-year-old people in uh, ill-fitting suits. So if you ever wanted to see a 20-year-old person or like a, like a gang of 20-year-old people in ill-fitting suits, definitely go to baseball's winter meetings. In any case, as I say, Dave Cameron, uh, uh, and as I begin this, uh, our conversation by saying Dave Cameron's on the front lines of baseball right now, reporting to us directly uh, from the Swan and Dolphin in Orlando. We, uh, we discuss a number of the moves that have taken place over the last week. Again, there have been a number of them. There's a lot to talk about with regard to the Mariners, both with regard to uh, their acquisition, their signing of uh, to a 10-year contract of Robinson Cano, but also to uh, a Jeff Baker article that came out this past week. Uh, there's the um, there's the Cleveland Indians and Drew Stubbs. What's going to happen with Drew Stubbs? No one's talking about it for a number. There are a lot of reasons, but no one's really talking about Drew Stubbs at the moment. But those are bad reasons. Everyone should be talking about. It. Anyway, let's get to it right now. It's Dave Cameron. He's in Orlando, Florida. He's also the managing editor of Fangraphs. And this edition of Fangraphs Audio begins right now. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. We don't uh, we don't have to do this forever. I know that you're uh, you're in the uh, you're on the front lines of of uh, baseball right now. No, it's okay. I was just. Uh got lost in my zeal to uh, help Roy Halliday's case for the Hall of Fame. Oh, does he have one? I think he does. I, uh, for me, I'm, I'm more of a peak Hall of Fame guy than a career longevity guy, and I think if you have a 10-year run of dominance like Roy Halliday had, uh, the need to stick around as a below-average player for another five years shouldn't be the determining factor in your candidacy. Is... Um... Uh, Sandy Koufax is like the ultimate peak year guy. Yeah, I mean, in the piece I compare Holiday and Koufax and basically show that over their 10-year stretches of dominance, they were basically the same pitcher by career value. I think they both threw about 2,200 innings. Holiday was actually a little bit better by uh, overall runs prevented relative to his era. Koufax's three-year peak was much better than Holiday's or really anyone else's in baseball history. But if you look at the rest of like the decade of dominance that you kind of look for in a Hall of Famer, Halliday was better every year after that top three than, than Kopax was. Uh, and I think for me, uh, you know, a 10-year run as one of the game's best pitchers is enough uh, to say this guy is Hall of Fame worthy, considering how good Halliday's peak was. Right. Um, 
So, okay, we decided that. Yeah, it, it's done. He's in. <laughs> well, you might have, uh, well, let's see, if he's retiring now, that's, uh, what, uh, six years till he's eligible for the ballot? Well, five, yeah, but, uh, so he'll be eligible, what, in like 2019? 2019, and you will, uh, yeah. when do you, uh, I mean, not, you know, I'm sure you'll be kicked out of the BBWA before then, but, uh. Right, yeah, pr- any day, any day now. <laughs> provided that you're, uh, that you're allowed to remain part of that, uh, esteemed association, when are you, uh, when are you allowed to start voting for Hall of Famers? I think around 2021. I, it's a 10-year, uh, waiting period, assuming they don't change the rules at some point, uh, before then, uh, and I've been in for three years now, so I've got seven to go. Uh, so Halliday will become eligible before I become a voter, uh, but I'm sure he will not be a first ballot Hall of Famer. There's a lot of people who really value career numbers like wins, which Halliday only has 203 of, and he's not going to get a lot of votes from people who really put a lot of emphasis on those kinds of numbers. So I'm sure I will have multiple chances to vote for Roy Halliday, assuming I don't get his done at the BBWAA or the Hall of Fame doesn't change its voting requirements uh, or the, you know, the, the criteria for who's allowed to vote before I actually get a ballot. Yeah. So, but, uh, so you, you, theoretically, if, uh, things work out as we might expect them to, you will have an opportunity, possibly, to vote for Roy Halliday, and that's something that you would do. Uh, yeah. I mean, assuming that, uh, you know, the ballot actually gets uncrowded at some point. I mean, you know, the way we're going right now, by the time I get a ballot, that could be like 45, uh, you know, 40 Hall of Famers every year. And, uh, maybe, maybe Halliday ends up as like my 18th choice or something, and I'm trying to still get Randy Johnson and Greg Maddox in the Hall of Fame because of how messed up the system is. Who knows? Right, yeah, or Jeff Bagwell, uh, and, uh, Tim Raines, right. maybe, something like that. Although Tim yeah, Raines may well, not be eligible okay, anymore. Tim Raines but... won't be eligible at that point. But right, I mean, you know, I think guys like Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker, uh, there's going to be some good candidates, who, or at least good bubble candidates who deserve real consideration and who aren't going in anytime soon. And are just going to hang around and hang around and until the BBWA clarifies some uh, rules or kind of uh, removes the 10-player limit. I think we're going to have uh, some of these guys just sticking around forever, getting 40, 50% of the vote, and it's going to clog things up. Do you think that uh, one of the arguments for a small hall um, concerns um, the amount of um, construction fees uh, for actually building a larger hall of fame and uh, reducing <laughs> building costs? You know, uh, the town of Cooperstown isn't that large, so, you know, we do want to be careful to not overbuild. But at the same time, I think uh, there's plenty of room in that museum for a few more busts. Yeah. How often do you get a chance to say busts, Dave Cameron? Uh, not as often as I'd like. Anytime yeah. I, I can work it in, in a non-sexual <laughs> manner, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be working that into fun. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, we look forward to it. Uh, Dave Cameron analyzes all busts. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see if that sells. The uh, Willie Mo Pena discussion of the the podcast. Maybe. Oh yeah, that's right. Does wait is Willie Mo Pena going to get a bust anywhere? No, no, but he was a bust. I was I was oh, right. using a different kind of term uh, or a different uh, usage of the word. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right. As opposed yeah. to a there's boom, there's booming, and then there's busting. Right. Yeah. What a, what a rich word we've. Uh, what a rich rich vein of uh, the English language we've found. Maybe we should charge for this episode of the podcast. Okay, maybe next time we'll do that. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to do that in the meantime. What? Um, <laughs> you are presently in it in in Orlando. I am Orlando, it's Florida. Like a million degrees there. Uh, okay, okay. Are you inside or outside? I'm inside. Uh, it's even warm inside. The outside is obnoxiously hot. Okay, so it's warm. Uh, we've just, we've um, discovered it's warm in Orlando. 
Uh, yeah. Have you had any uh, – now, I remember I was there w- with you last year, not in Orlando, thank God, uh, Nashville. And uh, yeah. we had a fun time, I think. And I, uh, some notable sightings for me at the time were uh, I got to see uh, Ron Washington smoking outside, yeah. uh, which was fun. I got to see um, – let's see, Jim Leland – and Bruce Bochy involved in conversation, which was uh, just after they had played in the World Series against each other. I'm pretty sure that uh, it's an upset that you mentioned a manager smoking and it wasn't Jim Leland. No, right, but I think it's uh, pretty obvious at this point. We know we know what his <laughs> habits are. Um, yeah. I actually got to talk with uh, uh, Alex Avila's dad, what, he, who's uh, who works in the Tiger system. He, yeah, he's a consistent GM, I think, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we had a we had a conversation accidentally. We were both in line for drinks, and the and the line was going. It was uh it was taking a long time. So uh, yeah, he was forced to talk. Lines or want to do. Yeah, right. Um, let's see. And there were a bunch of there were a bunch of other people too. Uh, Peter Gammons was ubiquitous. He was walking around a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So with the white shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So who? Uh, any notable sightings for you thus far? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, there, there was a press conference this morning announcing the uh, Hall of Fame inductions of three managers, Bobby Cox, Joe Torrey, and somebody else. You can see I was paying great attention. Uh, <laughs> Tony Russa? Yes, he would be the third guy. Uh, so, you know, there was sightings of them sitting at the Dave, uh, on the Dave, uh, wearing kind of ridiculous baseball jerseys, uh, you know, which when you're in their 70s looks a little odd, especially if you're not actually at the stadium. Uh, but, you know, they were they were cited uh, answering questions. Uh, I would say I have not been here long enough to yet have any chance encounters with people, uh, you know, relaxing or sneaking away. Uh, you know, that will probably happen more Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, and uh, I don't know if there have been any. Um, well, we've had so many, and we're going to get to them now. I guess now, I guess is when we'll get to them. But there have been so many moves leading up to the the winter meetings. That uh, there's only so many, uh, I guess, big announcements that could occur during the, those same meetings. Yes, uh, we certainly are going to have reduced news uh, this week compared to last week, simply because there are so many, so many things can happen. Uh, I do think we'll we'll probably see some rumblings around David Price this week. I think Shinsu Chu could sign. Uh, there might be an unexpected trade. Maybe the White Sox will get bowled over by the Diamondbacks for sale. I think there's going to be stuff that will happen. Uh, but compared to last week's craziness, there's just no way to maintain that pace unless every team decided to trade all of their players. Right, yeah, which is uh, uncommon. It's an uncommon maneuver in Major League Yeah, it, general, generally not a great idea to get rid of all of your players all at once. Unless you're the Astros. And maybe, you know, a viable path forward. The, um, so <clears throat> this, is a, this is a minor question, but it's relevant to today to some degree. There were a couple of uh, Cleveland posts, Cleveland-related posts today. We did the Zips projection for Cleveland um, and then, of course, the uh, uh, Petriello did a did a post on the um, sort of a hypothetical situation in which Carlos Santana is actually a third baseman for the Cleveland Indians. Um, but one thing I noticed while doing the the Zips post for the for Cleveland is that um, it, it it appears as though, especially following the signing of David Murphy that one of Ryan Rayburn or Drew Stubbs is likely to be traded with... Uh, in, yeah, probably Drew Stubbs. Right, probably Drew Stubbs. Uh, do, do you have... Is there a sense uh, if that is imminent or not? Uh, because 
he's he's fine player, and uh, I think he's got pretty good defensive skills, and he can at least hit left-handers, I assume. I don't know how good he is all around, but he's probably slightly more than a platoon player. Yeah, I think Stubbs is a you know, very solid fourth outfielder, especially if you have a uh, left-handed starter who could use a platoon partner or an injury-prone starter who you want a replacement for who will play more than a you know a normal uh, reserve. Uh, and I don't know that I would say a trade is imminent, but I do think you know before the end of the winter, the Indians will move Drew Stubbs to some team who you know may have had their sight set on a, a better uh, everyday outfielder but missed out on their targets or decided they spend their money elsewhere and wanted a $4 million, uh, you know, solid bench reserve part-time player. Uh, I, you know, I think there's a decent amount of teams in baseball that could use Drew Stubbs, um, you know, especially a contender who's trying to fill out uh, with a platoon or a team trying to take advantage of maximizing their bench resources. I think uh, Stubbs would be a perfectly acceptable, uh, you know, 10th, 11th guy in a roster. Right, and but maybe a little bit pricey for a team like Cleveland to have as a fifth outfielder on its roster. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not so much the $4 million cost as it is the fact that he and Rayburn are duplicative, and uh, I think it's going to be a little tough for them to extract value from Stubbs uh, while also having Rayburn uh, to be Murphy's platoon guy, which you know is going to take a lot of the bats they would give the Stubbs otherwise. So I think uh, not as good a fit with Cleveland, who already has a similar type of hitter, they can use in the, in the role that Stubbs should be used in. Right, and also I think probably in light of the fact that um, – they're a little bit light uh, in terms of starting pitching after you get – I mean, uh, obviously Masterson is going to be the ace of that staff, and Kluber and Salazar are both uh, p- promising fixtures in the rotation for maybe slightly different reasons. But then uh, I don't think – I think if you enter a season with Zach McAllister as your f- fourth starter, that's a little bit rough perhaps. Yeah, if you're trying to win, that's not really what you want to do. Uh, I will say though, since Corey Kluber was projected on your depth chart for Infinite War, uh, <laughs> that's going to help their rotation quite a bit because I think Infinite War will get you to the playoffs. Yeah, we haven't seen a season like that for a while. Yeah, it would be pretty. I look forward to Corey Kluber's uh, Hall of Fame candidacy, where his one Infinite War season is way to get a long career mediocrity after that. Yeah, well, let me tell you, uh, this is a podcast exclusive. The reason. Corey Cooper was given Infinite War uh, was because uh, Dan Zimborski sent me the Zips projections for Cleveland without a projection for Corey Kluber. And I sent an email. So you just made one up? Yeah, I made up the most reasonable one, which is Infinite. Uh, And I I sent him an email. I said, you know, when you wake up. But, of course, I'm, you know, six hours ahead. And I was like, I want to finish part of this post. And so I finished the depth chart. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to leave it. And then uh, he sent me the Kluber projection and all, you know, it's uh, all of his well. I think he's got like, you know, he's worth about two wins. And I don't think, I think something two or three wins is uh, is uh, reasonable to expect from Corey Kluber. Yeah, I, I think two wins is reasonable. Three is maybe a little aggressive, but you you are an aggressive Corey Kluber fan. <laughs> yeah, although that's probably going to change because I, 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 my, uh, my affections... They last for about a year for a player like that, that's so true. we'll, we'll yeah. see who comes around. I have not heard you talk about Colby Lewis for a long time. No, no, that's exactly right, and that's by design. Colby Lewis uh, was uh, he he that was a magical year, and um, yeah. that year ended, and then I think it was I started I think with Charlie Blackman the next year, and that was yeah, uh, a little right. bit rough. Uh, Max Scherzer was 2012. That sort of developed. That was late, sort of a midseason development. And then, uh, yeah, they Kluber last year, and it remains to be seen. You know, there are always candidates. 
You're really a pump and dump kind of guy. You're not a big in the long-term relationships. You really just want to use them and then throw them away. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it, you're see so you're casting it in a uh, in a in a in a poor light. And my my only point <laughs> is I, I think that you, you don't cling to the magic after after you've had it. You know what I mean? Uh, I I respect I fully respect Colby Lewis and uh, and respect Cordy Kluber, but it's you know it's not it's the magic goes and that's fine. We had our time together. It's kind of like uh, it's like a it's like a you know, Lady in Red situation. Krista, Krista Berg, great song from the 1980s. Yeah, that's a magical yeah. happening. But after that, it's gone. And that's, that's fine. I think if you're trying to involve me in a podcast, pop culture references from the 80s, certain way to do it. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm yeah. an expert on that subject. All right, let's move. Uh, do you want to move to... We're going to move to a huge mess. And uh, it might only be a 10-second conversation, but um, this weekend, uh, Jeff... Baker of the uh, what Seattle Times and the and the PI are they the same thing at this point? No, no, they're, they're different papers. There. All right. Well, the, of the Seattle Times, Jeff Baker published a uh, wide-ranging report on the Mariners front office. Uh, you, of course, uh, you got uh, you're noted for being a contributor to the US to USSMariner.com. Maybe even the proprietor of USS Mariner. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can call me that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, you obviously have followed the Mariners somewhat closely. I we don't need to probe into this infinitely, but I, I guess I'm curious about the situation. The the basic idea is that um, I don't I don't I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's uncommon for a for a uh, for a front office to be exposed by so many different sources as dysfunctional while it's actually still in place. Uh, the, the reports on Jack Zarentic are not glowing uh, in Jeff Baker's piece. The reports on Howard Lincoln and Chuck Armstrong, who I guess they're, what, the managers essentially, or the owners, I should say, uh, of the club are not great. But I, I, could you remember any situation where so many people have been willing to go on record as saying that it's dysfunctional, uh, you know, just since you've been following, or maybe somehow you're aware of it for existing before. I mean, the Yankees during the '70s, I know there was a lot of turmoil. Um, I don't know if there's anything maybe, else besides that. Maybe the 2012 Boston Red Sox. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that we were talking about, you know, beer in the clubhouse and fried chicken, and uh, you know, players calling meetings, uh, asking to have the manager fired, and. Uh, you know, the, the Bobby Valentine versus the front office dynamic was, was you know, a uh, pretty big soap opera. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that this is uh, maybe even on that same scale considering how acrimonious that was. I mean, this seems to be uh, maybe a, a less dramatic uh, takedown of, of people involved than that was. And, you know, a year later, the Red Sox won the World Series. So, um, you know, I think this isn't necessarily unprecedented. I think the, uh, I think the, you know, I'm a, I would say I'm a little hesitant to speak on this for uh, a variety of reasons, one including the fact that Tommy Blangino, who is uh, quoted heavily in the article, made his debut for Fangraphs on Friday and is now in our employee. Uh, I'll, let Tony, I'll let Tony speak for himself, and he's certainly capable of doing so. Uh, I do think that, you know, having been around the organization or talking to people who have been in and out of the organization, you know, there's some... Uh, uh, disgruntledness uh, among a lot of people who have worked for the Mariners and worked for Jack Sorensic. This is not a new thing. This is not a surprising story. 
this was not something that I hadn't heard before, that other people hadn't heard before. Uh, there are a lot of people in the game who don't like the way that Jack Zorinsic does business. And, uh, you know, that's probably true of a lot of other GMs, but specifically, uh, I know a decent amount of people in the game who just don't like the guy. And, uh, I think, you know, when you burn that many bridges over the years, there's just no way that all of them are going to stay off the record. And I think the, the accumulation of angry, bitter ex-employees just got to the point where, uh, they weren't all going to stay silent anymore. And, and that resulted in this weekend's article. Um, because it's not, I mean, really, it's not just Eric Lynch and Tony Bongino. There are a lot of people out there who are really unhappy with the way they were treated as, uh, when they worked on Mars. And whether it's fair or not, or whether they're bitter because they lost their jobs, I mean, we can speculate about motivation, but there's a lot of them. And so I think at some point, if you say, you know, there's eight, nine, ten guys who all have very similar stories, maybe they're not all lunatics, maybe they're onto something. Yeah, well, I was actually, I had, I guess, uh, for whatever reason, I had missed it. Uh, Bob Engel, um, essentially, I guess Bob Engel was not a, f- and, and he was the, uh, he's the sort of famous international scout uh, that that worked with Seattle, and I, um, I guess he wasn't necessarily himself uh, fired, but his, his no, he, he quit. Yeah, he quit, but Patrick Guerrero, with whom, yeah. who I guess was his, his, basically his right hand guy. Yeah, his, his top lieutenant was fired, uh, and you know, depending on who you talk to, it was either. A, a shot across Angle's bow, or an attempt to get Angle to quit in a power play, or it was, uh, you know, a there's another CD version of that story that goes around because uh, the Mariners, you know, realistically, Angle did a really good job for a really long time bringing a lot of talent in. But if you look at the last four or five years, they've thrown a lot of money away uh, on international players who have had their ages changed, uh, who've had scandals surrounding them, who have not played well when they've gotten to the major league. So, you know, there's some thought that maybe. Uh, the Mariners wanted to push Engel out, and this was the easiest way to do it was fire his best friend. Right, yeah, and, and I, I guess that had surprised me because I know that they had uh, certainly had some success uh, in the uh, international market. But anyways, yeah, I guess uh, obviously that was, a, that was a huge story, and there's a lot of I, – I suppose uh, anytime you get into reputations of various people, there's a lot of uh, noise that will accompany a story like that. Not, I'm not saying it's bad or good, and uh, you know, but it's uh, it's certainly something that one notices, even when living in Paris, France. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of story that certainly got baseball attention. I mean, the Mariners actually issued an official response this morning, basically denying all the claims, uh, which is not something that they would normally do uh, based on a speculative art- article like this. They felt it was important enough to, to say that they disagree with how they were characterized, which is you know what you would expect them to say. Um, I do think that uh, this is not going to help the Mariners in their search for a team president. Chuck Armstrong was mentioned prominently in the article is retiring at the uh, end of January, and, and they're in, in uh, currently in a search for his uh, successor. I think uh, there are going to be people who would be good candidates for that job who would read an article like this or, you know, had heard uh, rumors of it, and then see people go on the record and say, maybe that situation isn't as good as I thought it might be. Uh, I think this could potentially hamper Mariners from having uh, as good a candidates to fill their presidency role um, than before the article was published. So this actually could have some uh, tangible negative effects on their organization. Right now, um, of course, uh, this is only the se- this is only the second biggest news story <laughs> about the uh, Seattle Mariners over the last week um, because uh, they they signed uh, to a ten year contract. Uh, the number one free agent of this particular offseason. Uh, and there's yeah, been I like how, well, 30 minutes into the podcast, we're getting to the Robinson Cano signing. 
No, it's, uh, well, we take some time to warm up here. Uh, yeah. uh, right. uh, you. But, uh, well, I mean, you know, part of the reason is because there's only, it's one of those stories where, it's one of those stories where it's easy, relative to the number of things that have happened, there's a lot of, there's also a lot of commotion, a lot of noise attached to that particular story, right? And there's really only so much we could say at this point that, uh, A, uh, Robinson Cano is getting paid a lot of money, and also B, Robinson Cano is really good right now. And I mean, those are the two most prominent things. I don't know. Is there anything else more prominent we could say? Uh, I think, uh, you know, those two are those two things are certainly true. I think the question on all of these kinds of transactions is, you know, going in that you're signing a ten-year deal for whatever age thirty-one, you've signed up for some bad years, and you've done it intentionally. This is not this is not going to be a surprise when at age 37, 38, 39, and 40, Robinson Cano was a terrible baseball player making a lot of money. I mean, this is, the Mariners went in, eyes wide open. They had to know that was the reality of, of those last few deals in which why the Yankees wouldn't go past seven years, $175 million. Um, so you basically say, I'm giving up, you know, maybe you assume that 75 to $100 million in dead money at the end of that contract. Uh, or, you know, maybe if you think Cano will still be a, you know, below average but decent enough player to play, maybe you're thinking, okay, it's 60 to 70 million, whatever. You're giving up some large chunk of money at the end, so you're just lighting on fire and, and wasting. Uh, so the question is, can you extract enough value in the next few years in order to make those, the dead money years at the end worth it? Um, and I think, you know, the interesting question is, can the Mariners do that? Because right now, they're not a very good team, even with Robinson Cano. I think by my count, I, I would say they have five above average major league players right now, including Cano. Felix Hernandez, Rashi Wakuma, Kyle Seeger, and Brad Miller. I think those five are, are quality, uh, better than average regulars at their position. And then the other 20 guys on the team are, uh, you know, some sort of fungible, uh, you know, maybe guys with potential who aren't there yet or guys who never, never are going to be there. Um, so, you know, can the Mariners find six, seven more, uh, quality players in order to, uh, put a contending team on the field and catch up with Texas and Oakland and Boston and Detroit and these teams that are significantly better than them over the next few years, uh, you know, they're something to try. I mean, it's not like they're going to they're going to throw a bunch of money at a bunch more free agents. Uh, but, you know, I think it's an interesting question of can you turn yourself from a bad team into a good team through free agency. Other teams, I have almost all failed. Maybe the Mariners can be better at it than everyone else has tried, but I, I will maintain some skepticism. Now, is there, uh, regarding that point, is there a, is there a place for free agency? You know, uh, you say yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so so what's the place for free agency? I think uh, free agency is a fantastic place to fill out your roster. I think if you're if you look at it and say, okay, there's, uh, we have 25 guys on the roster, and really you need to have some depth beyond those for 25. So maybe every team should prioritize having you know 30 good players in the organization or 30 players that they're comfortable giving some amount of playing time to in the next year. Uh, I think your top 10 probably should come either through uh, development, uh, internal uh, processes where you, you create a player out of your farm system, or through trades uh, for players who have not yet been uh, subject to market prices. I think, you know, you can maybe uh, uh, justify adding one free agent into that core mix of your 10 best players, but if you're really putting, like, four or five of your 10 best guys are at market prices, based on free agent salaries where you're paying six or seven million dollars a win. Unless you want an amazing talent development farm, you're gonna run out of money real fast. Uh it's just very hard. If you say, you know, a team a playoff team needs approximately forty war, 
uh, to be a contender. 50 is, is better, but you want to be around at 40 to consider yourself a legitimate contender. If you're paying $6 million to win, right, you, you need uh, to get to, to 40 or $240 million payroll. Uh, no, no one's doing that, right? So no one is spending at that level. Uh, even to get 30 war and, and you say, okay, well, I'm gonna have 10, uh, you know, league, league minimum or a low cost guy. That's $180 million payroll. That's the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers. Uh, you know, for teams that are more mid-market, I think, realistically, you can only afford to pay market price for, you know, maybe 10 wins. Uh, 15 if you've got a, you know, $150 million payroll. Something in that range. Uh, and the rest of it needs to be pre-arb guys or arbitration eligible guys who have their salaries reduced, uh, by the constraining economic system of the game. Uh, you just can't afford to go out in free agency and say, I'm going to try and buy 20 more at market price. It, it doesn't work. You, you pay a giant premium to get these guys. They're generally on the downside of their careers. They're usually, uh, the reason their team didn't resign them in the first place. They underperform their projections. Uh, deciding that you're going to try and build the core of a playoff team through premium free agent pricing is, is a bad idea. Okay. Well, now let's turn our attention to the team from which uh, Cano uh, has, you know, played for his entire career, or a team for which he's played his entire career. The Yankees are actually signing a bunch of guys uh, this offseason. Uh, they signed Jacoby Ellsbury, of course, at what you have to consider something like market value. Beltran got uh, three years, isn't that right? Yeah, three years and $45 million. Uh, Three years, $45 million. And, of course, they signed Brian McCann as well. So they've signed uh, three, of the, three of the top uh, free agents this offseason, plus uh, Hiroki Kuroda, who, you know, has played with the club in recent years, but, uh, you know, he was also a free agent, and so uh, he sort of counts too. I, I mean, do you think that um, this is something we didn't see the Yankees doing last offseason, but, of course, they have a history of – uh, uh, you know, rather high payrolls. Uh, do you think this is a, a strategy that ultimately is going to be uh, uh, negative for them, or have they do- gone about it in such a way as that it's not uh, in, uh, prohibitive? I think, uh, in some senses, uh, what they've done is actually pretty smart. Uh, Brian McCann and Chico Gallagher signed for a combined $238 million, or $2 million less than Robinson Cano got. Uh, so they're going to get 12 seasons of those guys for basically the same price that Cano signed for 10 years. I would rather have Jacoby Hillsbury and Brian McCann than Robinson Cano and some league minimum slub. Uh, and I think it's a pretty easy call. I don't even think that's really all that close. I think McCann and Hillsbury are significantly better than Cano and some slub. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of a difference in cost simply because the Cano contract can be spread out over 10 years and so there's a little bit of a luxury tax cost that goes with signing two guys and paying more in salary in the short term. But, uh, I think I would rather do what the Yankees are doing and sign multiple good players uh, than overpay for one great player. Okay. Well, then, uh, so so back to the, the Mariners as a little aside with regard to the Yankees. You, you mentioned that uh, you've given the contract that they've given Cano, given the fact that, um, I mean, this is an obvious statement, he's likely to be better in the, uh, sooner. He's likely to be better now than he is in the future. They have uh, – between him and probably Felix Hernandez too, and you know maybe Iwakuma, they have um, some incentives to to try and win now. What are the next moves that are that happen? Because I know, for example, uh, looking at their depth chart, it looks like Nick Franklin is their DH, and uh, Franklin yeah. is a decent young player, but he's not a necessarily a huge bat. Um, uh, they also uh, there's been talks connecting them with David Price. I assume they have to they have to. 
uh, acquire more talent before the offseason is done to make it a really successful offseason? Yeah, I think they, from their perspective, they think, uh, they need another hitter, maybe two, uh, preferably right-handed. Uh, their lineup already leans pretty heavy to the left side before they find Canada, who's a left-handed hitter. I think uh, any additional bats they're going to have are going to be from the right-handed variety, and I think they want kind of traditional power-hitting uh, middle-of-the-order for RBI-type guys. So they're in on Nelson Cruz. They're trying to trade for Matt Kemp. I think these are the kind of guys they're going to be on after their next piece. Uh, but they're absolutely also in on starting pitching, and they want a number, uh, kind of a number two, number three guy to slot in between David Fernandez and whatever young kids they put at the back of the rotation. Uh, the problem is if they go after David Price, who's obviously not a two or three, he's a, he's a one, uh, which is giving you a pretty nifty rotation with him and David Fernandez and Masashi Wakuma, it's going to cost you those young kids at the back of the rotation in order to get him. So uh, I think that there's a pretty good chance that they end up trading Taiwan Walker and Dustin Ackley and maybe Carter Caps and some young arms from the minors uh, to the Rays to get a couple years of David Price. And then they try and, you know, sign a guy like Corey Hart to DH, and then they, you know, maybe make a trade for Matt Kemp. Uh, and then go sign, you know, John Axford or, uh, you know, Joel Hanrahan or some free agent closer with some experience and call it an offseason. And I think, uh, you know, the Mariners would be content to go into next year with, with two right-handed power hitters, uh, one outfielder and one DH, and another starting pitcher, and then, you know, fill their roster out around that. Nick Franklin's going away. Uh, Dustin Ackley's probably going away. I wouldn't be surprised if Taiwan Walker went away if they made a David Price trade. Uh, so you're going to see an excess of, uh, you know, kind of a, a stripping of young talent from this team as the Mariners push in to try and win while Robinson can was good. Right, right. And then uh, you mentioned John Axford. This will be the last thing I ask you because uh, you've already done more than enough. Uh, John Axford was, I think, uh, was was a player uh, we discussed a bit last week as a um, one of the more notable ones who was a candidate to uh, or not to be tendered a contract, and he was not tendered a contract. Um, uh, in true John Axford fashion, he's one of the more entertaining players there is. Uh, certainly, his Twitter persona. Uh, I think he released his own uh, a personal ad. Um, <laughs> uh, he re- yeah, um, uh, like uh, something available, uh, tall, uh, good-looking right-hander. Uh, we'll pitch for any major league. Yeah, Mustad- yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, is uh, that's sort of a uh, that's a that's a good that's indicative of uh, his personality. I don't know. He's uh, very easy to get along with, and amusing. Um, from that group of uh, non-tendered players, though, were there any other uh, players who maybe surprised you, or, or I mean, the, cl- the club's decision surprised you not to not to tender a player? And, and, and sort of the you know, part B of that question: Are there any interesting uh, free agents now because of because of that uh, interval? Well, I think maybe the most surprising non-tender was Ryan Webb of the Marlins. Uh, he was kind of a young power sinker ball guy. Uh, had a pretty good year last year. Uh, through like 65 quality innings in the back end of the Marlins rotation. Uh, he was scheduled to make one and a half million dollars in his first time through arbitration, which is, you know, basically nothing for a guy who throws in the mid-90s and gets ground balls and, you know, is a pretty good relief pitcher. Marlins in typical Marlins fashion decided they didn't want to pay. Uh, they cut him loose and he signed a two-year, four and a half million dollar deal with the Orioles, which suggests that the Marlins misread his market value and if they didn't want to pay Ryan Webb, they could have traded him. Because uh, the team probably would rather pay him one and a half for one than two, four and a half for two. Uh, so, you know, this is another case of the Marlins just not being very good at their job. Uh, but now Ryan Webb will step in and then be a big part of the Orioles bullpen, replacing Jim Johnson, who makes $11 million in the trade of the A's. So I think, uh, 
uh, you know, it's a little bit of an interesting uh, carousel of relievers here where Webb is more the guy you would have expected to end up in Oakland. Uh, but in this time, the, the A's are the ones paying for the premium closer and the Orioles get to, you know, ball it a little bit by dumping their high-priced 50 save guy and replacing him with a guy who got untendered and might be, you know, 80% of the pitcher is the guy they got rid of. Right, and actually, but uh, a hard-throwing uh, cigarette ball pitcher is also something you could use to describe Jim Johnson. Right, exactly. I think that yeah. was uh, the, the, one of the reasons they made that transaction is they see Ryan Webb is very similar to Jim Johnson, and they would rather pay you know the $8 million cost difference somewhere else. Right. Um, curiously, though, the Marlins have spent some money elsewhere. They've signed um, uh, Jared Saltalamacchia. Uh, they've signed... Uh, they, they've signed um, Raphael for call. Garrett Jones. Yeah, Garrett Jones. Right. I mean, you know, Garrett. This is not a. It's not a world-beating move. Uh, but Garrett Jones has uh, made money before. He's going to make. Um, what he's going to make? Well, not a crazy amount. Eight million dollars over two years. That's not huge. Uh, for call makes uh, what three million plus incentives. So these aren't huge moves, but these are players. I think these are better than. Signing uh, what Polanco and Pierre last year, I think maybe even if only incrementally. Yeah, but I think Burkhall and Polanco are probably pretty similar. I mean, in both cases, you're buying. Excuse me, this interminable hole will not go away. Uh, in both cases, you're buying uh, like broken down remains of a formerly good player, and you're hoping he can stay healthy enough to give you 400 at bats. Uh, so I think those those moves are pretty similar. I do think the Salt Lake deal was a little bit of a departure from what they've done previously, but he is from that area. Uh, it was for him a little bit of like going home and playing near his home uh, location and his family, and so I think that there's maybe a draw there for Slovakia uh, to be more interested in playing for the Marlins than most other players. Um, and, you know, I think Garrett Jones is probably going to proceed the trade of Logan Morrison, so that's basically a neutral swap where they're going to they're basically keep salary even in that, in that situation. Uh, so I don't necessarily see this as a huge change of pace for the Marlins, other than the fact that they signed a local boy who wanted to play for them. Right, and actually, uh, I don't know if the uh, th- three years, twenty-one million, is a crazy overpay for Saltalmachia. It, it seems like no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good deal for him. Right, because it 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 seems like a case where a club is not paying him for what he has done, but what he's likely to do. Yeah, three twenty-one for a, a quality starting catcher. There's nothing wrong with that. Really. Right. Okay. All right, Kim. Is there anything else uh, to add? Any more sightings since we've uh, uh, since we've started talking, or what? I'm currently standing about six feet behind Tom Verducci. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I've seen uh, Verducci in, I forget where, maybe uh, well, one of those stadiums, and uh, he's a he's a handsome gentleman and much more attractive than I am. I he has a, uh, a suit that fits, which uh, basically, you know, sets him apart from almost every other 19-year-old kid uh, who's wearing a suit at this location and uh, probably borrowed it from their father. Uh, yeah. I think you can see that there's a tailor at play here. <laughs> well, that's and people should know this. If you haven't been to the to the to the uh, winter meetings, there are those sort of sightings of uh, you know front office personnel, uh, the occasional player, um, you know certainly a lot of media. It's mostly teenagers or early yeah. or, or you know very a lot young, of them, yeah. yeah, very young twenty somethings who are uh, you know have a stack full of resumes and are throwing them at anyone uh, who looks mildly like an adult. That's mostly what it is. That's, that's, that's how this works. It's a yeah. giant job fair. I mean, there actually is a job barrier, and they want you know their ten seconds of face time with the baseball office official to hope to get their foot in the door, and they will walk around and very easy to spot because most of us are you know wearing uh, you know some kind of like button down shirt or polo or something, 
but not not all that fancy. Uh, the job seekers almost always decked out in a poor fitting suit and tie. Uh, very easy to spot, makes them very easy to avoid, which is actually kind of a nice little perk. Now, listen, mo- most importantly, are you going to get dinner out of Appleman at some point? I, I did I did last night. We ate at Il Milano, which is the Italian restaurant here at the Swan. Uh, you know, it is not terrible. It is not great, but it is not terrible. Okay, all right. And you and you have to hang out with Eno, I think, for the next couple of days too, don't you? He doesn't get in until this evening, and I'm going to do my best to avoid him. <laughs> Who's rooming with you? Is it Sullivan again? Or no, Sullivan's not there? No, no, Sullivan's not here. Uh, Appleman and I have our own rooms. We have rented a three-bedroom uh, suite, uh, luxurious 1,500-square-foot uh, condo, basically. Uh, and so uh, Appleman and I have our own bedrooms, and Eno and Laurel are sharing a room. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the managers have decided to seclude themselves. Uh, <laughs> maybe because Part of the reason is that I am still a little under the weather. I don't think anyone would want to share a room with me if I cough and hack all night. So, for their own benefit, I have uh, secluded myself in the room. Right, you are, and you are a, a ferocious snorer too. And I imagine it's that only is, is, especially when I'm when I have a cold. It is, uh, yeah, I'm basically sawing down trees and I'm doing the work of a lumberjack from you know yeah. two a.m. to ten a.m. I will say, having room with you before, it is it is an, uh, it's a noise that I did not know humans could make. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> basically there's a chipmunk living in my throat. Yeah, yeah. Some sort of, sort of, maybe a family of them. Anyway, yeah. all right, Cameron, yeah. you're, you're done here. Uh, that is, uh, so, so thank you, Dave Cameron, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, reporting live from the bowels of the, what the what's it called there? The Swan? The, the Swan and Dolphin. The Swan and Dolphin, yeah, in Orlando, Florida. Um, uh, I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.